It is one of the most neglected aspects of Jesus' work. That's according to our former pastor, Derek Prime, in his excellent little book, The Ascension, The Shout of a King. And it can hardly be disputed, I think. While as Christians we gladly focus on the birth of Jesus, while time and again we return to the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus, and while we rightly spotlight the death and resurrection of Jesus, as we've just considered at Easter time, nonetheless, the ascension of Jesus is often the great omission. It's not something we deny so much as we ignore. And this is an unfortunate ignorance. Because to quote Derek Prime again, to overlook the ascension is like reading an exciting book and failing to read the last chapter. It's a very real sense in which the cross of Jesus and even the resurrection of Jesus are not the apex of Jesus' earthly ministry. That would come to the ascension. The ascension which concludes Jesus' saving work on earth and which begins Jesus' reigning work from heaven. No doubt we will be impoverished, friends, if we don't factor in the ascension to our thinking and to our living. So we conclude our studies in Luke's Gospel tonight by considering the ascension as Luke presents it. And I invite you to take a Bible and turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. The final chapter of Luke. It's page 1062 in the Pew Bibles. And we're reading the last four verses. So from verse 50. Luke 24, verse 50. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Amen. What the disciples experienced on that unprecedented day, what they witnessed on the Mount of Olives, was of course a unique experience. These first century disciples witnessed with their own eyes the ascending form of the Lord Jesus Christ. But while theirs was a unique privilege, there's another sense in which we are invited to envisage their experience, uh, to share in it. It's why we're given Gospels as well as Epistles. It's why we're given the stories in the New Testament as well as the doctrines, so that we can enter into them So that we can, as it were, see and hear the events as they uniquely occurred. And in these verses, Luke invites us to enter in 
to these unrepeatable and unparalleled events. To follow the disciples out. To follow the Master to the Mount of Olives. To lift up our heads and to strain our necks and to return to our everyday lives rejoicing as the apostles did. And as we take this journey, and I still hope you have your Bibles open in front of you, you'll need those, there are two things that God would invite us to do, that God's Word would call us to do this evening. First of all, God would invite us to witness the ascending Jesus. Witness the ascending Jesus. The apostles first witnessed Jesus ascending, but helped by Luke's account, let us see in our mind's eye this remarkable moment. And to help us visualize, there are three particular things that Luke draws our attention to. Three details that help us form the picture. Let us see Jesus leading. Let us see Jesus blessing. And finally, let us see Jesus rising. Did you notice Jesus leading? Jesus leading. That's what Luke first emphasizes in verse 50. When he had led them out. See, foremost to grasp in our understanding of the ascension is this. It was Jesus' initiative. Jesus wasn't pushed out of the world. Jesus wasn't forced out of the world. Jesus was not hurried out. He led them out. Jesus wasn't following someone else's lead. Jesus wasn't being forced out of the world by his foes. Or leaving disappointed at the ill treatment he had received. Jesus is rather calmly, steadily setting the pace. He's already set the time. It's 40 days after his glorious resurrection. Now he sets the pace. And did you notice also he decides the place as well, the location. It was the vicinity of Bethany. That's verse 50. Why did Jesus choose this particular place? Well, Bethany was that special location where Jesus' dear friends lived. Mary and Martha and their brother Bethany was that place where Lazarus had been amazingly raised from the dead. Bethany was also a place where Jesus frequently stopped over. It was just a mile and a half from the city of Jerusalem. And Bethany was that place where that sinful woman had anointed Jesus in preparation for his burial. Do you remember? Bethany was a special spot to Jesus. And perhaps most special about it, was that on the eastern side of Bethany, adjoining it, was the slopes of the Mount of Olives. And you talk about precious places in the life and ministry of Jesus. The Mount of Olives, which in the last week of his life, Jesus often retreated with his disciples. The Mount of Olives, where Jesus had the night before the cross, agonized with his Father in prayer. One writer speculates, perhaps they are standing on the very ground into which Jesus, six weeks earlier, had sweat blood. 
And perhaps most significantly, the Mount of Olives in this vicinity of Bethany was a, a place where they could oversee the panorama of the city of Jerusalem. That city Jesus had entered in triumph on Palm Sunday. That city over which Jesus had wept. That city inside whose walls Jesus was condemned, outside whose walls he was crucified. It was that place where he had been raised from the dead and appeared to his disciples. It was the, over, the location where Jesus' most vital ministry had taken place. And here's Jesus. It's to this spot that he leads them. This is his agenda. He is leading. And secondly, also, he is blessing. Did you see that? Because upon their arrival at the place, it seems that Jesus turns to his disciples. It seems that they see Jesus' face for the last time at this particular juncture. That they hear his words for the last time on earth. Though we don't know specifically what his words were. What we do know is that with words, Jesus blessed them. He raised his hands and he pronounced a blessing over them. Verse 50. You could say that he gave them a benediction. You know, like we do at the end of the services every Sunday. Benediction recognizes both a a solemn parting. And also a commissioning. It's sending people out into ministry. And Jesus was sending his disciples out into ministry. But most fundamentally, and you can miss this, benedictions represent blessing. They represent love and goodwill. It is the calling down of God's gracious favor on other people. Brothers and sisters, I want us to underline this. That Jesus' last earthly act was to love the disciples he he left. It was one of goodwill, even to these, these disciples. I mean, he could have left them with a scolding. This bunch, they've not exactly been model followers. Slow to learn during his ministry. Quick to desert when the going got tough. Slow to believe. In the resurrection. In fact, here would be a worthy summary. They disappointed Jesus, deserted Jesus, defied Jesus, and defected from Jesus. But do you know what? Jesus still loved them. After all of that, he doesn't exit with a scolding, clenched fist. He would have been entitled to leave like that. He left with the open, gracious hands of blessing. And you know, it strikes me as obvious this evening that there could be, there will be, some in our gathering tonight, and you are a Christian, yes. You've come to the point in your experience where you believe, or you think, that you've gone beyond the pale with Jesus. It's kind of easier, isn't it? Thinking that Jesus still loves you and forgives you for things you did before you were a Christian. But what about when you are a believer and yet you still deny your Lord? Will he disdain you? And the answer is, of course, no. We wouldn't want to minimize sin, but we should want to magnify the amazing, as we sung, astounding grace, the unfailing love of the Lord Jesus Christ. However great a sinner you are, I guarantee this, he's a greater saviour. And even when your love for him grows cold, 
He loves his own with an everlasting love. And so as he goes to heaven, he blesses the most unblessable people. He blesses them. He leads them. Thirdly, uh, we see in the story Jesus rising. We call it the ascension. Verse 51 simply records, he was taken up into heaven. And of course, like the resurrection, the ascension is often rebuffed and brushed off by its critics, its skeptics. Indeed, I know this evening that I may not just be preaching to the choir. And maybe you're here tonight and you think, what a ridiculous notion that someone, anyone, in 2008 would still believe things like this, the ascension. Well, I would love to speak with you a little more about that if you're not a Christian. I'm sure you've got many questions. But let me simply ask you one question at this point to think about, and it's this, do you believe in God you know, many Christians, they don't believe in Jesus necessarily in a personal way, but they claim to believe in God. Well, let me say this to you. If you don't believe in God, the ascension is a big problem, obviously. But if you do believe in God, if you believe that there is a creator, that someone got things started, it's not hard to believe in the ascension, is it? That the same God who made the laws of gravity that makes things come down can break the laws of gravity Take Jesus up into the heavens. And it could be this evening that actually you need to not start here, but go back a few steps and ask a few more fundamental questions. Who made the world? Is there a creator? And who is this Jesus in the first place? Even from a Christian perspective, however, the ascension is a cause for the greatest wonder. It is utterly wonderful, and it is, I would submit to you, unique. You say, what about the other ascensions in the Bible? Wasn't there two other guys, Enoch and Elijah, was it? Were they not taken up into heaven as well? Well, that's true. But Jesus' ascension was in many ways very different from theirs and much greater than their ascension. Let me briefly tell you why Jesus' ascension is unique. First of all, Jesus' ascension followed his death and subsequent resurrection. Enoch and Elijah uh, did not die. They, They were translated straight into heaven. They never experienced death. Jesus alone died for the sins of the world, was resurrected, and then ascended into heaven. Jesus is the ascending Savior. They were not. Secondly, Jesus' ascension was unique because he was alone accepted into heaven on the basis of his own merits. When Jesus was welcomed into heaven, it was the vindication of his perfect life and sinless death. It was the demonstration that Jesus and all that he did was acceptable to God. And by contrast, Enoch and Elijah, faithful men of God though they were, were not sinless. They made mistakes. And it was indeed by grace and through faith that they were welcomed. Indeed, we may even suggest that they were welcomed into heaven prospectively on the basis of Jesus' ascension. Precisely the reason that they could enter the holy heaven as sinful people was because one day, one man would be able to enter on his own merits. The righteousness of Jesus imputed to them. He's the ascending Savior. He's the sinless ascendee. Those two things make it unique. Thirdly, 
Jesus' ascension was unique because it was a round trip. Jesus was the returning Saviour. Matthew Henry just beautifully sums it up as he often does. He's an old commentator, Matthew Henry. As he arose, so he ascended by his own power, yet attended by angels. There needed no chariot of fire, nor horses of fire. He knew the way, and being the Lord from heaven, could go back himself. He's a returning conqueror, and upon his return, the ascended Jesus became the enthroned Jesus, who now is the mediator between God and man, between heaven and earth. And he's seated at the Father's right hand. And I want to simply say to you tonight that whether or not you have this view of Jesus makes all the difference in the world to your Christian life. Jesus is ascended, Jesus is enthroned, and Jesus is employed. Jesus is not unemployed this evening. Jesus would soon send his spirit into the world and today he builds his church and tonight he defends us as an advocate against the evil one and he's interceding for sinners. And I want to simply ask you tonight, is that your view of Jesus? Is that my view tonight? Is your picture of Jesus up to date? I suppose you've had this experience. You go into somebody's home and there's a whole range of family pictures along the wall. Sons, daughters, grandsons, granddaughters. And occasionally I've noticed a strange thing uh, that some people who have grown up children have all only the children's photographs. There's the baby snaps. There's maybe the teenage pictures. There's possibly up to graduation, and then suddenly all the pictures stop. And what's more, they, they talk about their children as little Johnny and little Jeannie, and little Johnny's six foot two now. And little Jeannie is a mature 51-year-old woman. They're actually mature professionals in significant jobs. But they're still in the crib, in the mines, of the mother or the father. That's how we can be with Jesus. Some would always have Jesus in the crib, wouldn't they? They they would retell the Christmas story every day of the week. Don't give them the man, Jesus. And others of us focus more on the youthful, middle-aged Jesus. Of course, Jesus died a, a youth, sort of coming into middle age, 33 years or so. And these are wonderful pictures. The Gospels give us these Wonderful snapshots, the life, the ministry, the death, the the crucifixion, and the resurrection. But the question is this, where are the present pictures on the wall? Because Jesus is no longer on earth. Jesus has not so much grown up as he has gone up. And while we want to remember all the other aspects of Jesus' life, we must not neglect to see him as he is now. He's no longer in the crib. He's no longer on the cross. He's no longer in the tomb. He has ascended to the Father's right hand. He's enthroned tonight. He's interceding for you tonight. My dear friends, if we don't understand this, we will distort reality, and frankly, we will be terribly discouraged. 
Because every time we sin, we will forget that presently we have an advocate before the Father. And every time the world seems to be in chaos, we will panic because we will forget that there's a sovereign king on the throne of the universe. And we may even just think, because Jesus is absent, that he doesn't care, when he is praying every minute of every day for his church. And that's why the first exhortation tonight is, Christian, witness the ascending Jesus. It's practically significant. Now, what is the appropriate response to such an amazing sight? This leads us to the second thing. Worship the ascended Jesus. Once we witness the ascending Jesus, the only response can be how the disciples responded. Worship the ascended Jesus. What does verse 52 say? What does it say the disciples did in response? Does it say that they loved him? Well, they had loved him for a long time. That would have been nothing new. Does it say that they respected and revered him and appreciated him much more? Well, they'd long esteemed him as the master, as the rabbi. Now, what it says is this, that they worshipped him. That is a radical statement, isn't it? Indeed, it is the only reference in Luke's Gospel to the disciples worshipping Jesus. It's not the crucifixion. It's not even the resurrection or appearances that draw this out. It's the ascension. As Jesus rises before their very eyes, as heaven welcomes him into glory, no longer can they view him as just a man. He is who he claims to be. He is God in human flesh. And he's worthy of worship. You know, this is a main reason why Christianity is so out of step in our culture. In our pluralistic society. It's very simple. We believe that Jesus is worthy of worship. We believe he's God. And that's why it really matters if someone comes and says to you, well, you follow Jesus, and I happen to follow another philosophy, and it doesn't really matter, does it? That's why we need to object at that point. And say respectfully, it does matter, because the Jesus we follow, we believe to be God. And if he is God, then he demands ultimate allegiance from every human being on the face of planet Earth. No exceptions. Jesus is not a purchase item to be taken at your own convenience. He's a great reality with which we must all contend. You may be here this evening and you're not a Christian. Maybe tonight that you have heard the gospel presented before. Maybe that you understand that Jesus first came from heaven to earth. That he lived that perfect life that you could never live. That he died on the cross For all the sins you've committed against God in your life. You understand that he rose from the dead. You understand the call to turn from your old life. And to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation and eternal life. But you're doing nothing about it. And you're brushing it off. As if it's something that can be put off till a more convenient time. And this would teach us tonight that Jesus is not an item on the supermarket shelf. 
He is worthy of worship. He's worthy of your life. And he calls you to give it to him tonight. This was the first post-resurrection worship service. Did you notice that? And I'd like us just to explore for the remainder of our time something of the worship that came forth. And it's really amazing. It doesn't tell us an awful lot. Uh, But it gives us the 101 of worship, I think. Here's the basic thing. It's about Jesus. Worship's about Jesus. They worshipped him. We don't even know what songs they sang. Uh, It doesn't even seem as if they had music. How did they do it without music? Maybe they didn't have music because the apostles would have fought over the music style. Some preferring first century AD contemporary worship music, others preferring the ancient hymns of classic Judaism. In all seriousness, really what matters at the end of the day is that we worship him, isn't it? If we get that right, there's a lot of other things that don't matter. If we get that wrong, nothing else matters. If we lose sight of that, nothing else matters. It doesn't matter how great the music is or how to our taste it is. See, we don't worship worship. We worship Him. We don't worship particular styles of music. I hope we don't. I hope we will be willing at times even to forgo our preferences for the sake of others being able to worship Him. If it's faithfully done and it's truthfully done, it's really about worshipping Him, isn't it? As we keep that our central focus, I want us to notice a couple of supplementary characteristics of the apostles' worship. The main thing was that they worshipped him, but there's a couple more things Luke mentions. First of all, the apostles' worship had an earthly location. An earthly location. See, the apostles don't ascend into heaven with the angels, with Jesus, and then praise him there. Where did they worship? They returned to Jerusalem, verse 52. They actually went back to the hustle and bustle of the city. They didn't go up into the purity and peace of heaven. Wouldn't that be much easier as a context to worship God? One day, believers, we too will worship in the glory and the splendor of heaven. But today, we worship him on planet earth. And we worship him, and just incidentally, Also in a city, not in Jerusalem, but in our Jerusalem, the city of Edinburgh. This is where we worship on Sunday. This is where most of us anyway worship with our lives throughout the week, Monday through Saturday, in this place. It's in the mix of a busy, diverse, and sometimes distasteful urban environment. But this is the place. And I'm so glad we're in a a city centre church. We could move out to some field somewhere where there's only a few cows and sheep to evangelize. But God wants us to be in the world, though not of the world. And he wants us to be worshipping in the context of the world. It's earthly location. Notice the second thing also. The disciples' worship has an expectant posture. What do I mean by an expectant posture? Well, they, they worship a Jesus who they expect to work. They worship a Jesus who they expect to work. See, there's also another reason why they returned specifically to Jerusalem. They could have gone many other places. 
Why did they return to Jerusalem and stay there? Well, the reason was that Jesus had told them to remain there. We get that in the, in the context. Rodney preached on this this morning. Jesus said, don't leave Jerusalem, but stay there. There's a gift that I'm going to send to you, and you'll pick it up there. He was talking about the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus would soon pour out on the day of Pentecost to indwell and fill and empower his church for witness. And therefore, don't miss this, underline this, the disciples' return to Jerusalem shows their expectation that Jesus will work as he promises. That Jesus will fulfill this promise to pour out the Holy Spirit. Jesus isn't done working. And we're going to see this as we go into the book of Acts next week. Acts is a story of Jesus' continuing work on earth, orchestrated from heaven. By his Spirit, the power of his Spirit, through his gospel, the message which transforms lives, as it is carried by his church. It's the continuing work of the Lord Jesus. Jesus isn't finished. And you know what he's working on? He's building his church brick by brick. My question again would be this to you. Are we worshipping a Jesus at work? Are we worshipping a Jesus whom we expect to be at work in our church? It's a good question just to ask people in your discipling relationships and over coffee. How is Jesus working in your life? And how do you see him working in other people's lives? which is good to ask as well, because we're often very individualistic and self-focused. We should be expecting to see Jesus working. Of course, he's not going to send his Holy Spirit again in the same way. That was a unique event, but he continues to fill us with his Spirit. He continues to convict and convert and change lives. Do we think that we come here on a Sunday and sort of worship Jesus, who's seated on the throne and otherwise doing nothing, And then we go out the rest of the week and sort of carry on the work by ourselves. I think that is often our expectation. The biblical picture is very different. Jesus in heaven is at work. And we're sort of his little helpers. There's a third thing, however. As they worship in this earthly location, as they uh, worship with this expectation, thirdly, they're, they're worshiped has an exuberant core to it. An exuberant core. The last words in Luke, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Luke's gospel began in a temple with an announcement to a priest. Now it ends in a temple with the praise of God because Jesus has ascended and he's about to send his spirit and build his church. And this gospel began, as James said, with a message from an angel. A message of good news, of great joy for all people. And now do you notice, it ends with great joy. With rejoicing. The joy is the bookend to this book. The first bit is promise, the second bit is fulfillment. And we're going to see it continue. The church in Acts is a triumphant, joyous church. That sings when it suffers and when it's persecuted. I wonder if we appreciate 
and worship and ascended Jesus. You know what the litmus test is for that? If you're going to this week and thinking, do I have this in my theology, in my mind? Here's the way you will know that. Is your joy full and running over? Because when we have the truth of the ascended Jesus firmly in our sights, it will be. I was uh, chatting to a brother this week about the passage, and at this point he said, we don't do this, do we? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, we are non-expressive, but deeply moved, you know. Non-expressive, but deeply moved. Well, that's a kind of a Scots thing in part, I think. But I don't know. Maybe, despite the personality differences and cultural differences, maybe the fact that we don't get externally excited is in part because we're not really internally excited. Maybe it's because we don't see, and I'm not talking about froth here, maybe it's because we don't see in our doctrine the ascended Christ. And I say this not to condemn anyone, I know the lack of affections in my own heart. One of the questions I ask myself every week in personal review is, how are my affections for Jesus? And I can tell you it's the most devastating question I ask. Because often there aren't great affections as they should be. What are we to do if the joy is missing? Let me recommend something that's not jazzy. But let me suggest this. We need to spend consistent, prayerful time meditating upon such deep truths as the ascension of Christ. You see, that doesn't sound exciting. Listen, and some of you know this by experience, quick fixes are usually short-lived. Superficial remedies don't really solve deep problems of a lack of joy. We've got to go deeper if our joy is going to be fuller. You know the moments when I, I was thinking about this this week, what are the moments I feel deepest joy in my Christian experience? Two things. Number one, when I'm studying and preaching upon a biblical text with deep truths and meditating in it all week and then coming to preaching it on Sunday and it's just kind of, sometimes I feel a bit out of control. And secondly, when I'm singing some hymn that is strangely not about me, but about him, about Christ. Singing about what he's done. And singing about who he is. And singing about what he's doing. Behold him there, the risen lamb. Doesn't your heart sing when your mouth expresses that? It's a theology of Jesus' present work. My perfect spotless righteousness. The great unchangeable I am. The king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased with his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Doesn't your spirit soar when you sing those deep truths? Oh, we need more of that kind of deep reflection. Turn off the television. Coronation Street isn't very good these days. Learn a hymn. Learn a hymn. Off by heart. Meditate on a passage. The Apostle Paul, dear friend, says this in the book of Colossians chapter 3. 
Set your hearts on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. You know how it is when you've been gazing up at something, up at the stars? Uh, Some of you, you're probably not far enough forward, but if you're sitting down there for a whole service, man, you get pain in your neck. In your Christian life, have you got neck strain? Are you so constantly, frequently, patiently looking above to where Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of God that it could be said, in a good sense, you've got neck strain? Or by constantly looking down to the things of this world and the trivial, are you failing to witness and worship the ascended Christ? He's not in the crib. He's no longer on the cross, friends. He's, he's not in the tomb. He's ascended above all. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And he's working today to build his church and to bless his followers, you and I. Behold him there, the risen Lamb. Let us pray. Dear Father, mere words cannot create such a vision of your ascended son. But your word can. And we thank you that Luke penned these short verses down that you might enliven our imaginations. And yet imaginations of reality help us not to be distracted, Lord, by the trivial. And yet through the hustle and bustle of everyday life to fix our eyes on him. Give us great joy, Lord, where that is lacking, where that is missing. Forgive us. Help us, Lord, to rejoice in our risen Savior. Not just risen from the tomb, but risen into heaven itself. And one day coming back. Help us, Lord, to fix our eyes on that now, even as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen.